All right, welcome those of you watching online. Welcome everyone in here. We're in part three of this series, Never Too Late. We're learning that no matter what you're facing in life, it's never too late to experience the power of God uh, to change you, to set you free. And this week, we're specifically talking about those times when you set out to follow God. Maybe say, I'm going to put God first in my marriage, or as a young person, I'm going to put him first in the way I'm dating, or in my school, and you step out to do the right thing, and bam, you run into a brick wall of opposition. Anyone know that feeling? I know the feeling well, and as I've been preparing this message and praying for all of you, I thought of this clip. It's a scene from a movie called Zootopia, and there's this little bunny, and she's so excited. She wants to make the world a better place. So she goes to the police academy and she graduates and this is her first day on the job trying to make the world a better place. Go ahead and take a look. Hey, Officer Hops, you ready to make the world a better place? <laughs> A ten hut. All right, all right. Everybody sit. I've got three items on the docket. First, we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Francine. Happy birthday. Number two. There are some new recruits with us I should introduce. But I'm not going to because I don't care. <laughs> Finally, we have 14 missing mammal cases. All predators from a giant polar bear to a teensy little otter. And City Hall is right up my tail to find them. This is priority number one. Assignments? Officers, Grizzoli, Fangmai, Delgato, your teams take missing mammals from the rainforest district. Officers McHorn, Rydovitz, Wolford, your teams take Sahara Square. Officers Higgins, Snarlow, Trunkerby, Tundra Town. And finally, our first bunny, Officer Hops. Parking duty. Dismissed. Parking duty? A chief? Chief Bogo? Sir, you said there were 14 missing mammal cases. So? So I can handle one. You probably forgot, but I was top of my class at the academy. Didn't forget. Just don't care. Uh, sir, I'm not just some token bunny. Well, then writing a hundred tickets a day should be easy. A hundred tickets. I'm not going to write a hundred tickets. I'm going to write 200 tickets before noon. Yeah, you know, I love that because sometimes we hit that obstacle. We're trying to do the right thing. There's an obstacle and we're rested and we're recharged. We've got a great attitude and we're like, okay, bring it, life. I can take it. But if you're anything like me, you keep serving God, you keep doing the right thing, and obstacles keep coming. And with time, you get fatigued. With time, you get discouraged. And the okay, bring it changes to, okay, I think I'm out. <laughs> or I think I'm done. I don't know if I can keep doing this. You know that feeling, I know that feeling, and here's the question we're wrestling with today. When you commit to do a good thing, only to face a discouraging setback, or maybe you're facing setback after setback, what can you do? 
This happens in our marriages. It happens in our personal relationship with God. This happens for churches and movements of God. When we step out to say, we're going to do a big thing for God, and we face a setback of some kind, what can we do? I want to invite you right now to think about your life and identify what is that setback or who is that opponent? Who's that person or that thing or that circumstance? It just seems to be standing between you and what you thought God wanted you to do. Maybe for you, the opponent is discouragement. Maybe you, for you, the opponent is pain. Maybe it's your own health that you've gotten a diagnosis of some condition. You just think, I thought I was going to follow God. I was stepping out. Now my body is sick. Maybe it's people you thought you could rely on who deserted you. Maybe it's things from your past. When you're doing your best, what is it that has blocked you? And to answer this question, we're going to pick up on the true story of Nehemiah. You might remember Nehemiah, his heart was broken about something that broke the heart of God. His heart was broken that the walls of Jerusalem, the city of God, were broken down. And as a result, the people of God were essentially living in a landfill. They're living like slaves on this ruined, burned-down city, and God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to go and rebuild those walls. And we've learned so far that when there's pain in your life, the first step is to actually feel it. Nehemiah weeped. He felt it, and then he brought it to God. We feel it and then we bring it to God. And for many of us, that's the most important step because we live at a time where we can easily medicate ourselves and not deal with our pain. We medicate ourselves with social media or with buying stuff or with relationships. We can medicate ourselves with busyness. And step one, where things are broken down in your life, is to actually feel the pain and then bring it to God. And as Nehemiah does that, God starts to open up doors and then Nehemiah commits and he says, okay, I'll walk through these doors. Nehemiah was 800 miles away from Jerusalem. God opens the doors for him to go. Now, here's the thing. After Nehemiah commits, right away, opponents show up. In Nehemiah's case, it's these two guys named Sanballat and Tobiah. And every time Nehemiah makes a step forward for the work of God, they're going to show up and they're going to mock him. They're going to mock God's people. They're going to say in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, things like, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are that you could actually do this work? And guess what? When you get serious about God's work in your marriage or in your finances, when you get serious about his work in your thought life and in your habits, the enemy is going to come to you and is going to say, who do you think you are? You can't do this. Those voices of Sanballat and Tobiah, they came through two human people, but it was really the voice of Satan. It's the voice of the enemy who wants to discourage God's people. Now, here's what's amazing about Nehemiah. He keeps pushing through every time those guys show up. And I want to pick up the story in verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah has pushed through the opposition. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. But at last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city. So Nehemiah has rallied an entire nation, all the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people. They're all working together. They're making progress. The people had worked with enthusiasm. We see this often when uh, families go through our Financial Peace University to get out of debt, to get their spending under control. They'll start to really make progress. They're paying down their debts. They're building up their savings. And then guess what? The transmission goes out on the car. Or we see it in marriage counseling that a couple comes in and the first few sessions, they're making great progress. And then they realize there's this deep stuff they haven't dealt with. And as they start to open up that stuff, it's a barrier. And one spouse thinks, is this really worth it? It was easier when we just kind of pretended we liked each other. 
And in those moments, we decide, are we going to give up? We start to make progress, but then there's an opponent. Here's the opponent in this text. When Sanballat, Tobiah, I've summarized all these opponents, when they heard that the work was going ahead, and when they heard that the gaps in the wall were being repaired, some of you, you're repairing gaps in your faith. You're repairing gaps in your home. And when the enemy sees that, the unseen enemy of your soul, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, when he sees that, it makes him furious. He doesn't want you living in freedom. He doesn't want your home to be a picture of heaven. He doesn't want your finances to be under control. He likes you being in slavery to him. And he gets furious when you start to make progress. And so look at this next verse. These opponents all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us, God's people, into confusion. So they've moved now from taunting and mocking to saying, we're going to physically attack you and kill you. Nehemiah responds the same way he does. Every time he's opposed, he prays. He says, but we prayed to our God. And then it's not like, well, we prayed about it. Guess we can't do anything else. He prays and then he gets to work. It's like, well, if they say they're going to attack us, then we're going to armor up and we're going to arm ourselves. And we're going to guard the city night and day to protect ourselves. Well, they do this, and now the people of Judah, the people of Judah are not outside enemies. The people of Judah are part of the movement. The people of Judah began to complain. They began to complain. They say, the workers are getting tired. There's just too much work to do. We'll never be able to build the wall. So Nehemiah has been dealing with outside opposition. Now some of his own people, the people of Judah, these are God's people. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. These are God's people. And these people have been working hard on God's work, but now they're discouraged. And believe it or not, now God's people are saying the words of the enemy. This is what Sanballat and Tobiah kept saying. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be able to do it. Some of God's people have heard that taunt, that rumor so much that God's own people start to say it. It's got to be a discouraging moment for Nehemiah. He's got threats from the outside, fatigue from within, And now this relentless enemy, look at this. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before God's people know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them. We're going to kill them and end their work. So this has gone from we're going to stop you to we're going to kill you. And by the way, this is the heart of your adversary, the devil, of Satan. He wants to end the work of God in your life. He doesn't want the work of God to go forward in your home, in your marriage, in your relationships, in any Bible-believing church, in any community, and he will send Sanballats and Tobias to try and stop it. Well, now another group of God's people gets discouraged, and these Jews who live near the enemy, so they're in closest proximity to these critics, they came and they start telling the leadership again and again, these enemies will come from all directions and attack us. I mean, this is like, crying fire in a crowded theater, right? This is just a dangerous thing that they're saying, and they're not trying to ruin the work of God. They're just afraid, and they're not acting like leaders. Can you imagine for Nehemiah? You've traveled hundreds of miles. You rally all the people. These opponents are relentless, and now your people who are the builders are saying, it's not going to work. We can't do it. The enemy's going to prevail. The people are all frightened. And I want to pause here before we keep going through the story because this is a crucial moment for us to just stop and think 
and acknowledge the reality that if it wasn't for godly leadership in this moment, the work of God would have ended, right? If Nehemiah had just passively been like, ah, maybe you guys are right, you know, maybe they are gonna attack. If Nehemiah had done nothing, the entire work of God for a whole people group, a whole nation would have fallen apart. But Nehemiah did something different. And here's my challenge to you today. I believe many of you, God has you at a point in your life where he wants you to promote yourself from being a passenger on the train of what God is doing to actually being a leader. What's a leader? A leader is someone who steps up when other people are afraid, when the enemy's attacking, and says, we're gonna keep doing the work of God. And for many of you today, God is saying, you know what, it's time to be a leader in your home. It's time to say as a parent, you know what, uh, it's fine that my kids watch YouTube every once in a while, but I'm not gonna let YouTube be the parent of my children and shape their view of the world. I'm gonna actually do that. I'm gonna make sure that I'm telling them how to think about life more than a screen is. Some of you in your marriage, it's time to stop being passive and start saying, you know what, I can't control my spouse, but I can lead myself and I'm gonna start being a spiritual leader. Others of you, it's time to say, you know what, I'm gonna lead my own soul. Instead of waking up every day and just saying like, what do they tell me to do at work? What does Instagram tell me to do? What do the advertisers say to do? What do my friends say to do? I'm gonna step up and I'm gonna lead my own soul. I'm gonna control what I think about because that controls my emotions and my choices and I'm gonna stop being passive and start being a leader. You see, any work of God, whether it's the work in your own heart and character and life or the work in your kids or your spouse or your family or a church, any work of God can stop if leaders don't step forward. Will you be a leader today for the work of God? Will you say, on my watch, the kingdom of God will keep advancing no matter what opposition? Well, this is what Nehemiah does. He jumps into action. Next verse says, so I placed armed guards in the most vulnerable parts of the wall, and I stationed the people to stand guard by families. And he doesn't just have them stand guard, he arms them. They're physically ready. They're going to respond to this threat. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, look at verse 14. Here's what Nehemiah says. He gathers all the people. He says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Why not? Because you can remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And here's the thing, whatever that opponent is in your life, could be cancer, could be depression, could be your son-in-law, right? It, it could be a person, and you're like, that person's ruining my life, or that ex-spouse, or my parents back when I was a kid, they messed me up. Whatever that opponent is, they don't have to control you. They don't have to control your outlook or your circumstances. Remember the Lord. He's bigger. He's great, and he's glorious. He's the God of thunderstorms and hurricanes and earthquakes and galaxies. And he's bigger than your depression. He's bigger than rumors. He's bigger than your son-in-law or your father-in-law. He's bigger. And he's not limited by that. And so you remember God and then you fight. I just love how Nehemiah says this. He says, remember the Lord and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your spouse, fight for your house. 
And there's these moments in life where God allows difficulty to kind of shake us and awaken us and say, am I going to fight for the work of God in my family? Am I just going to passively kind of let my kids grow up and then be like, oh, they really didn't pick good spouses. They're really enslaved to a bunch of stuff now and have a horrible life. I wish I had been a little more proactive as a parent. And realizing that these moments of saying, will I say, I'm going to be in the house of God every weekend. It's not about going to church. It's about fighting for your family. So I was saying, I want my kids in Kids City because someday they're going to be adults making adult decisions. It's about saying, I'll fight for my marriage, even though I don't feel in love with that person anymore. Even though they're bitter and antagonistic to me, I'm going to fight for this marriage. Fight for your brothers, right? We're a family, the body of Christ. And there's times where it's like, well, you know, my life's good right now. There's money in the bank. I'm not going through a crisis. I don't really need to go to church because I'm not needing God right now. Guess what? People need you to show up and serve and minister to them because every week when we gather here, there's people who just lost a child or who just got a cancer diagnosis. And, and the brotherhood, we fight for the brotherhood. We fight for each other. So what can you do when a setback threatens to stop God's work in your life, here's the answer. If you want it, you've got to fight for it. If you really want to see God work in your life, he'll do the miracles, he'll do the supernatural stuff, but you do have to do your part. Nehemiah doesn't just pray and then walk away and like, well, we prayed, God will handle it. He prays and then he puts on armor and he organizes the people. He says, God will do his part, but I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to do my part. You know, most of us know that a beautiful green lawn where there's no weeds or crabgrass and the mulch is perfectly positioned and everything looks good doesn't happen by accident. It takes a lot of work. And the same is true if you want to build a business, if you want to build a family, if you want to build a movement, it takes work. And there will be opponents, there will be opposition, and in those times you've got to choose, do I want this badly enough to actually fight for it? Well, what's beautiful is this promise in verse 20 of chapter 4 that when you step forward and say, I'm going to fight for God's work in my family, in my church, in my world, guess what God promises you? Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah can say this with confidence because he knows they're doing God's will. And when you say, you know what, I want to do my finances God's way. Or I'm dating and looking for a spouse and I'm going to handle it God's way. I'm going to handle my sexuality God's way, my desires God's way. Everything in life, when you say, I'm going to do it God's way, then guess what? He will fight for you. That's a promise. Some of you, you may need to jot that verse down and just claim that promise. When you're stepping out for God and you run into a brick wall, remind yourself of this. If you want it, you've got to fight for it. But here's the second half. God will fight for you as you do his work. God will fight for you. Don't forget it. It doesn't mean you won't go through hard times, but in the hard times you remind yourself, God is fighting for the advance of his kingdom in my heart, in my family, and in this world. Well, from this story, I want to give you three ways to overcome your opposition. And here's the first one. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. On your outline, I've put a whole bunch of verse references of times where Sanballat and Tobiah oppose Nehemiah and the work of God. And in fact, there are many more as, as we go through this entire book, dozens of times. The reality is every time Nehemiah makes a big advance for God's work, these enemies show up. And the reality is this, when you get serious about God's work, 
there will be opposition. When you get serious about his work, there will be opposition. And I don't say that to discourage you, but I do say it to prepare you. So that when opposition comes, you're not like, whoa, what happened? I thought if we just did what God said, everything would be, you know, a wide and easy road and there'd be no problems. One of my favorite events in the Olympics is the hurdles. Here's a picture of some Olympic hurdlers. And I, uh, you know, I ran track in high school, but I never did the hurdles. I just did normal running. It's a real skill getting over those hurdles. Now, I want you to take an imaginary journey with me, and it's a bit of a silly journey, so just, you know, bear with me. I want you to imagine at the next Summer Olympics that, you know, the whole world's watching and these Olympians gather and they're at the track and they're at the starting line. They're all kind of, you know, stretching out. They're getting ready to run. And one of these Olympians just sits down on the ground and just starts like weeping. And so the coach comes up and says, you know, what, what's wrong? And the Olympian says, I was so excited for this. I've been training my whole life. But, but what, what are those obstacles out there on the track? What are those hurdles? You know, and here's the thing. Very often when we set out to follow Christ, that's kind of what we do. Jesus told us, he said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So a lot of times we set out and we're like, I'm going to follow God. In my family, we're going we're gonna to have a godly marriage. Or I'm going to have God-like finances. Or I'm going to really represent Jesus in my school or in my workplace. Or as a church, we say, we're going to be a beacon of light in a dark world. And we're going to raise a generation. And we're going to reach more people. And then guess what? There's a hurdle. There's an obstacle. When you know they're coming, it's not depressing. But if you don't know they're coming, they can really depress you. And so here's the thing. What does an actual Olympic hurdler do? They don't sit down on the track and weep because they knew the hurdles were going to be there. And this is part of your maturity as a follower of Jesus, is you know there's going to be hurdles. And so actually when you see one, what you say is, this is what we train for. This is what we do. And actually, as someone who understands the word of God, that Moses went through difficulties, that Abraham faced adversities, that Peter and Paul were persecuted. Then when a hurdle comes into your life as you're following God, you know what it means? Victory is on the other side of that hurdle. An Olympic hurdler can't win the gold medal without covering these obstacles. And what you know when you're really informed from the word of God is, I train for this. This is what I do. The God of heaven is going to give me strength to get over this. And the victory for me is on the other side of these obstacles. So it doesn't change that they're hard, but it completely changes your outlook when you know they're going to happen. They're part of life. Here's a summary of what Nehemiah was dealing with in his opposition. Taunting voices, threatening ideas, and discouraging rumors. Those all come straight out of the text if you study chapter 2 and chapter 4. They're never a coincidence so when you start really pursuing the work of God and all of a sudden you hear a taunting voice that says, who do you think you are? This will never work. You can't actually do this. Or you hear threatening ideas. It's all going to fall apart. You should give up now. Or you hear discouraging rumors like the people of Judah and the one group of the Jews were saying, it's just all, you know, the enemies are going to come. Why are we even bothered? Those are never a coincidence. They are always the enemy's weapon. And sometimes the enemy whispers it in your ear. Sometimes it's voices from your parents when you were growing up. 
Sometimes it's your own self-doubt. Sometimes it's an actual person like Sanballat or Tobiah. And whenever you hear those voices, they're the enemy's weapon. He wants to do specific things. He wants to discourage you. He doesn't want you being active about God's work. He wants to divide and he wants to destroy. Jesus said this is why Satan came into the world, to kill, steal, and destroy. And anytime God is working in your heart or in your church or in your world, the enemy's going to do what he can to stop it. But you recognize the attack and then you claim God's victory over it. By the way, let's make sure that we're not part of doing the enemy's work. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And there's time when you're hanging out with other Christians, it's like, oh, I'm not trying to gossip. I'm not trying to tear anything down. I'm just being real. Well, if just being real is tearing down another believer or the work of God, you got to acknowledge it for what it is. I've had times in my life where I've had to repent of that. Don't want to do the accuser of the brethren's work for him. There's a second way to overcome opposition. First, you be unsurprised by it. Second, don't be afraid. Don't you love how God says, fear not, don't be afraid? And it's like, okay, God, easier said than done. Anyone feel that way? Like, it's really easy to say don't be afraid, but what about when I feel afraid? How do we do this? The answer to how we do this is all in the difference between feeling and being. God never commands you to not feel afraid. He knows you will. In fact, Nehemiah, we saw in chapter one, Nehemiah said, then I was terrified. Nehemiah felt afraid. And while he felt afraid, he chose to be courageous. You be things that you're not feeling. You be in love with your spouse when you're not feeling in love with your spouse. You be courageous when you're feeling afraid. When Moses saw the army of Egypt barreling down on him and the people of God and the Red Sea's right there, I guarantee you he felt afraid. How you feel and what you be are two different things. And so when you feel afraid, you say, I'm going to be courageous. How can you do that? It's all about believing in the God of heaven. I've listed multiple references in your notes that every time Nehemiah feels afraid, he looks back to the God of heaven who is powerful, who is over and above the circumstances. So here's what you do. You put your enemy in its place. You say, the God of heaven is bigger and the God of heaven will give me success. This is what Nehemiah does in chapter two when Sanballat and Tobiah, the first time they oppose him, they say, you're never gonna succeed. It's not gonna work. And Nehemiah looks him in the eyes and he says, the God of heaven will give us success. My success isn't dependent on my skills or our tools We are aligned with the very work of God here and he's gonna give us success. And when you think, I don't know how I could overcome cancer or I don't know how I could overcome this loss of a loved one or whatever your opponent is, you remind yourself, I don't have to fear that opponent because the God of heaven is bigger and the God of heaven is able to work good from any situation that I surrender to him. Look at verse 15 of Nehemiah 4. This is right after Nehemiah tells the people, remember the Lord, don't be afraid. And then look at this. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them. I want to encourage you today that in the spiritual realm, you're a lot more powerful than you might realize. When the enemy comes at you to discourage you, to divide you, to destroy you, all it takes is acknowledging and saying, I know this is the enemy trying to get me to stop God's work. And I'm going to look to God instead. And then guess what? You frustrated the enemy. You can frustrate Satan today. Let's be a a room full of people who frustrate Satan. 
And those are people who very simply say, I see what you're trying to do, and my God's bigger. The moment you do that, he has no power. You frustrate him. In fact, I've worded it this way. This sounds simple, but think on it for a moment. So maybe a little bit profound. Your opponents have no power to stop God's work in you. You say, well, my spouse is so terrible. They're so into They don't have the power to stop God's work in you. In-laws don't have the power to stop God's work in you. No one has the power to stop God's work in you. The only power that Satan has, he works in the realm of ideas and words. We know that from Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way up today. His only hope to stop God's work in your life is to fool you into stopping yourself. You have a free will. And when you say, God, I want you to work in my life, there's no power in hell or on earth that can stop the work of God in you and through you. Satan's only hope is to whisper enough rumors and doubt that you close it down and stop it yourself. You know, if you struggle with this, of these words, these whispers, these voices, these doubts, getting you to stop doing God's work, I'd encourage you to write down a name. Her name is Corey. 10, spelled like the number, boom, like the word boom, Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom lived under Nazi rule during World War II. She faced unthinkable injustice and persecution. Because she was a follower of Jesus, she hid Jewish people against the law. She got arrested for that. She got sent to a concentration camp where the guards were horrific. And she lived with hardly any food in a flea-infested barracks, being physically tortured. And guess what? She... She writes these amazing books after World War II, and I'd encourage you to read them if you're ever struggling with this idea. And what she says over and over again is, they could attack my body, they could attack my circumstances, but they had no power to stop the work of God within me. And Corey Ten Boom ends up leading hundreds of her fellow prisoners to faith in Jesus. After the war, she writes books about no matter what you're going through, God can still work in you. Millions of people have read those books. They've helped me through difficult times in my life. No matter what's going on, your opponent has no power to stop the work of God in you. Satan's only hope is to fool you into giving up yourself. Are you going to give up? No. Okay, good. Hey, I want to show you guys an amazing story of a brother in our church whose opponent looked impossible. And I want you to see what God did in his life, a radical transformation that has just happened here in the last few months. Go ahead and take a look. My name's Kyle Johnson. Uh, I grew up right here, uh, west of Frankfort, Indiana. I've had a lot of ups and downs. You know, I've gotten a lot of trouble growing up. I think it like is in my DNA to have anger issues sometimes. But growing up, I got control of it. Two and a half years ago, I got with who now is my ex-fiance. Um, you know, things are going great. You know, it's who, she, who I was want to be with and everything. And we were supposed to get married first week of this past April. And uh, we had some issues and I wanted to fix them. So I wanted to, you know, stay and fix. And she just totally just like jumped ship, wanted out. And I didn't really know why. So I was like grasping for, you know, something to fix, you know, how to fix it and how to fix myself. And my uncle, who is very big in the church, I called him and kind of told him what was going on. And he offered up the Indy West Great Banquet in April. I mean, this was like four days before the banquet was going on. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm in, like sign me up. So he signed me up for it the Wednesday before 
that Thursday that I was going to the banquet, um, I found out that she had been kind of talking off and on to a guy that I had warned, you know, six months ago to back off. And, you know, she kept defending him, saying he was just a friend and all this stuff. And, but, you know, when I found out that he was the reason she just like gave up so quick. I was that anger that I thought I had control of was, I mean, that like right there. This was Wednesday night. I didn't move back in with my parents because she, she kept the house. And so I sit on the edge of the bed and I was just like, you know, this, I gotta get even. I mean, I was ready to hunt him down and commit the number one worst act in humanity. Like you don't, you wanna take my future away, I'm gonna take yours away. And that's when it just, it hit me. And I, I just felt God, I just felt his hand come down and just remind me, hey, you promised. And I'm a, I'm, I try to be a guy at my work as much as I can. And he said, you promised you'd go to this banquet. I said, all right, you're right. It's like, when I come out of it, we'll see if I'm still angry. I'm going for it. So I went and uh, there was one part, they have a huge wooden cross that they bring in and lay on the stage. And they give you these nails and these pieces of paper and this pencil. And they say, write your sins on this paper and nail it to the cross and leave it at the cross. Well, remember that sixth was the day we were supposed to get married. Well, I, I went to a race that day because I didn't know what else to do with myself. So I still had the wrist bracelet on. I went up and nailed that bracelet to the cross itself. After that moment, I was turning it up and I was gonna be done, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And like, it's, I just have to move forward. When I say it, it changed my life, it did. I mean, in, in three days, I went from having those thoughts of, you know, I mean, extreme measures that you should never, ever think to, I had a whole new outlook. I haven't missed a Sunday service since the first week of April. Um, you know, it's the first thing I think of on Monday morning around, actually when I come out of church Sunday, I mean, I'm already like planning my weekend next weekend to make sure I'm ready to go for next Sunday service. You know, I've forgiven a lot of people that I'd never even imagined I could forgive. My uncle told me it's like putting jumper cables on your faith. Um, it, it makes you want to go to church on Sunday. and. And he was right, it's just a life-changing experience. And it's not about what you want. It's about, you know, that he has a plan for you long before you're even created. I mean, he's, he's got a plan for you that you can't even begin to imagine. So every, every fall, every pain that you feel is, is preparing you for what, you're, what you were made to do. Can we celebrate God's work in Kyle's life? Isn't that awesome? Kyle's actually uh, in here today. Kyle's so proud of you, man. And um, it's a newfound faith for Kyle, but it's something we experience in our walk with God. Whether you're a brand new believer, you've been believing for 40 years, that you'll face obstacles. And you know what? Kyle thought his opponent was that shady dude who stole his fiance. But as he came to Christ, he said, I can't control that situation, but I can control myself. He brought his pain to God. He brought his pain to the cross. And he experienced that his real opponent was actually within him. It was that anger, that unforgiveness. And that the God of heaven 
was big enough to fix what was broken in him. And what I love about Kyle's story is he came to the God of miracles saying, I need you to change me. But then he, he took the God of miracles up on his promises and he said, so now I'm gonna be in church every week. And Kyle's now part of a, a group of men in our church where they're discipling him regularly. He's growing regularly. And this is the most important step with your obstacles. Step three, it's to remember the Lord. You come to the Lord and then you fight. You remember the Lord? God, only you can change this thing inside me. I can't change that person. I can't change that circumstance, but you can change the way I see it. You can make me a leader within it. And God, I look to you to do what only you can do. And then God, once I place my hope in you, I'm getting my weapons out. I'm gonna fight in the spiritual realm. I'm gonna actually do the work, whether it's showing up at church every weekend, being in a small group, serving where I know I'm gifted, I'm gonna do my part. Kyle's living proof that when you trust Christ to do what only he can do, he'll do the miracle. And he's living proof that even when he's ready to do the miracle, he's still counting on us to actually do our part, to actually show up. You know, where you've been opposed or where you've been discouraged about God's work in your heart or about God's work in your family or maybe even about God's work in your church, will you choose today to say, I'm gonna remember the Lord and I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight for my brothers. I'm gonna fight for my kids. I'm gonna fight for my spouse. As I've been praying for you guys and meditating on this idea this week, there's an old Tom Petty song, I Won't Back Down. And those lyrics just keep coming to my mind. You can stand me up at the gates of hell and I won't back down. You know, if you want God to do big things in your life, there's gonna be times of opposition where you just gotta dig your heels in and you just gotta say, I, I don't care what comes against me, I'm not backing down. I'm not backing down because I love my kids too much. I love the work of God too much. I, I, I've seen the changes in my life and I'm not gonna back down. I know what's right. I've got just one life and I won't back down. I love those words. And you know what I've learned in my life? When you step out and you're following God and you hit that brick wall, on the other side of that brick wall, there's always a breakthrough. There's always a big thing that God's gonna do. And sadly, sometimes I see people give up right before the breakthrough. And so you remind yourself, knowing in this world there will be troubles. When I'm seeking God first and there's a hurdle for his work in me or in my family or in my church, I know that on the other side of that hurdle, there's a breakthrough. There's a spiritual victory. That's why the enemy wants to try to fool me into giving up now. He doesn't want me to experience that breakthrough. The future well-being of your home, your spouse, your legacy all depends on if you'll dig your heels in when there's opposition and say, I'm gonna remember the Lord and I'm gonna fight for it. You could put it this way, maintain an unflinching focus on God's work, on the work he's doing in you and through you. This is what Nehemiah did as a leader. Some of the other people, and it'll happen, people in your home, people in your small group, people who you trust, they'll, they'll fall into that trap like the people of Judah and they'll say, oh, maybe it's all not gonna. This is when you be a leader and you say, I'm gonna maintain unflinching focus. Sanballat and Tobiah, they keep coming at Nehemiah and, and he almost never even acknowledges them. 
He says, I'm going to get back to work and I'm going to look to the God of heaven. He just has this unflinching focus. And the way he did that is he knew my God is bigger. My God is greater. I want to pray that for you today. Father, across this room, Lord, you see the obstacles. You see the setbacks. You see the opponents. You see every student who's trying to follow you in their school. You see every husband who's trying to work on his marriage, every wife who's trying to be a spiritual leader even though her husband won't come to church. You see the things that are broken in us and broken around us and you care about them. And today you've told us, God, that if we'll keep pursuing your way, that you'll fight for us. God, we believe you will fight for our homes. You'll fight for our hearts and our habits. You'll fight for our church. You'll fight for your work in Hendricks County and around the world. And so God, today we move our wills to say I'm no longer just a passenger on the train of life. Like Nehemiah, I'm gonna be a spiritual leader. I'm gonna lead myself. I'm gonna lead my wife. I'm gonna lead my kids. I'm gonna be a leader who says, keep your eyes on God and stay busy at his work. Don't let the enemy fool you into stopping yourself. God, I just claim that for our people and I envision what you're gonna do through us in every one of our lives and in us as a church as we say, we will not back down from the work of God. We will not back down from following his will for our lives. And so Jesus, we just wanna declare that to you now as an act of each of our wills saying, the God of heaven is who our eyes are on and who our hope is in. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.